Hello and welcome to Talk to Be Well. I'm your host, Dr. Robin Henderson, Chief Executive Behavioral Health for Providence, Oregon, and Chief Clinical Officer for Work to Be Well. This podcast is in honor of Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And today I have joining me two members of our National Student Advisory Council for Work to Be Well and a very, very, very special guest appearance from our very own Dominic Brown, who is an alumni of the National Student Advisory Council, a college freshman, but most importantly for this podcast, he's been a volunteer with Teen Line and can really talk with us about suicide prevention, what that's like to work on that in the moment. And I'm super excited today. I think we're going to have a great conversation. Now, as a reminder, the information provided during this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not intended, nor is it implied, to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Let's get us started by having you each introduce yourself, where you're from, and why this topic is important to you. And Dominic, you're the OG today. I'm going to let you go first. Hi, everybody. I am Dominic Brown. I am... I'm a former resident of Burbank, California, and now I am currently a freshman at UC Santa Cruz studying sociology. Um, I am a former volunteer of Teen Line and a former volunteer at Work To Be Well, and I am happy to join this conversation with you all. Awesome, welcome. Mohammed, how about you? Hello everyone, my name is Mohammed. I'm from the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, and this uh, topic is important to me as I feel like suicide is a heavily stigmatized topic and it should not be so in order to help save lives. Awesome. And Sarah. Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm from the Dallas, Texas area. And this topic is important to me because I've personally dealt with it a lot, whether it be me or my friends. Wow. Well, so why is recognizing suicide important? I mean, let's just start with the big question. Why does this matter? I saw a really disheartening statistic the other day from the CDC. It was that there was one suicide every 11 minutes in the United States. So I think that's just very uh, hard to think about and to comprehend, just to think that that many people feel like they can't help themselves or there isn't help out there for them. And they think their only options to take their life. I think that's a very very sad topic, uh, sad statistic to think about. And I think that more needs to be done so that number goes down significantly. Yeah, kind of like Mohammed said, I feel like it's something that especially in the youth population, we kind of ignore and we don't acknowledge it. And um, when we see the signs of someone struggling, we don't make that connection that they could be thinking about killing themselves. Instead, especially like parents and you know teacher figures and people like that they just don't recognize that what's actually happening and so if we actually trained those people a little bit more in seeing the signs of someone having suicidal ideation i think that we could save a lot of lives i totally agree and and i want to echo both of what you have said is you know we have to recognize suicide and we have to talk about it if we're ever going to want to prevent it we have to become aware of such a complex topic so we know you know, who do we need to send in to prevent these situations? You know, what resources do we have to provide? What conversations do we do we need to have? Because contrary to very popular belief that talking about suicide actually causes suicide, which is it's not true at all. We talking about suicide actually prevents suicide and helps connect people who are suicidal to the resources and the people and the discussions that they need to survive and to actually, you know, get hope in their life. You know, 
so many times after there's been an event at a school where someone has completed suicide or, or someone's had a significant attempt, there are the conversations and you hear people talk about, well, you know, I, I saw, I saw some signs or, or even worse, they say, you know, I didn't even know what to look for. What are some of the warning signs for suicide? What are the, some of the things to look out for? I mean, that's a great question um, because, you know, a lot of people don't know what some warning signs about suicide are or even for depression or anxiety or other, you know, really serious mental health disorders that are becoming more and more um, prevalent in today's society. Um, You know, some good things to look out for is, is someone not seeming as interested in, you know, the activities and the tasks that they used to be as interested in. Let's say, you know, you have a friend who used to be a, a football player and they they love devoting their time to football. And all of a sudden, you know, out of the blue, it just seems like they lost interest in football completely. And they lost interest in, you know, the activities that they used to have interest in. Um, you know, seeing someone who just seems like they are in despair a lot is a great sign of, you know, oh, maybe this person needs some extra support. And one really important sign to look forward to that a lot of people usually just sort of brush under the rug is actually just mentioning or joking about suicide. Because I know a lot of people who actually are dealing with suicidal ideation will joke about it to, you know, sort of test the waters and see where everyone is at about this conversation. And so if you know someone who's joking about it or, you know, talking about it or texting about it, you know, maybe it's a good idea to check in with that person because those are all very, um, very, you know, common signs when it comes to someone who's dealing with suicide. I think, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think Dominic brought up a good point with the changes in like behaviors, especially with changes in moods. If someone appears to be more quiet, more sad than usual, and it's for an extended period of time, and there were events in their life, um, maybe significant ones that caused them to be this way, and they haven't really addressed it, uh, that could be a very important sign to be aware of. And also with the joking about uh, suicide ideation, that's an important thing to keep an eye out. And I've like said to people before, um, like it's not something to joke about. Like it's very serious. People can be affected by this and people who do joke about it um, might seriously be considering it. I think that it's a compilation of a lot of smaller things too. Like for example, if you notice that someone's not eating their meals or they're not engaging in the habits that they usually do. Like they're not, like if they used to make their bed and they aren't making their bed anymore, if they're not doing their chores, if they're not doing the activities that they enjoy doing, is that that's a really big one. And I think that the people that are close to us are just one of the strongest mechanisms in order to screen for that. Because those are the people that can look at you and say, wow, she seems off, they seem off. And they can talk to you about it and try to help you. So for me is that my mom says like, when I was experiencing really severe depression, she said that she just saw the light just kind of come out of my eyes. Like it just was not there anymore. So I I think that that's a really important thing is friends and family, making sure that they're looking for, you know, just changes in mood, changes in activities, things like that. You know, Sarah, I appreciate you bringing up how friends and family look at that and what they see. What do you, what would you say if you suspect someone's having trouble when you were experiencing that, what could somebody have said to you that might have been helpful? I think the biggest thing that's helpful is just them letting them know that, letting you know that they're there for you and that like whatever you need is that they will try to help you with it. Is that like my mom, no, like whenever 
I was going through really tough times is that she would just, you know, be like, hey, if you need me to take you out of the house and, you know, we can go get like coffee or something, you can just get out of, just get out of the house and go do something fun. You know, we can take a day at school, like we can do whatever. It's just like being willing to change, I think, like just the routine of everyday life and really focus on that person and like focus on just their healing and helping them. That's at least what helps me. And I think that if a lot more, if a lot of people just took a little bit more personal time, even though we live in such a hectic society, so it's difficult to do that. But I think that if we did, if we were able to do that, that would help a lot. What else? Uh, like Sarah said, uh, offering your help if they need it, showing your support and, and just encouraging them to seek out resources um, and doing stuff that they enjoy, that stuff brought them uh enjoyment in the past and they had a passion for it and they stopped doing it say that hey we should go out and do this if it was like painting be like hey we can we should go and paint uh sometime um and then just seeking out resources in the internet too because there are so many resources out there out there um that can help you and that are there to support you as well yeah i'd like to echo you know you know, your positions and and your points, because you have very good points, you know, offering a space for someone to open up about their issues is so important. I know when I was dealing with severe depression and suicidal ideation and, you know, basically everything that you can think of, um, people who opened spaces for me to talk about how I was feeling and what I was dealing with made me feel like I wasn't alone, no matter how much I told myself I was, them, their presence made me feel like I wasn't alone. And honestly, checking in on people is super important. Be, don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, if someone seems like they're, you know, acting differently or they're, you know, or, you, or you're noticing signs of maybe depression or suicidal ideation, ask, be direct, ask them questions about, you know, how they're feeling. Don't be, a, don't be invasive, but just be supportive and ask them if they, if you can do anything for them, if something's been affecting them, if they need to rant. And there's also really good resources, you know, not just for people dealing with suicidal ideation, for, but for people who need to know how to help other people who are dealing with suicidal ideation. Like speakingofsuicide.com has resources for people who, you know, have friends or family with who are dealing with suicide who may not know what to do. Uh, Work to Be Well has an eCPR module that helps people, you know, recognize the signs of suicide and then help people through, you know, suicidal ideation. And um, there are so many other resources available, including a Be There certificate program that was actually... Um, co-founded by Lady Gaga. If you go to be there.org, you can learn how to help people who are dealing with mental health crises and help them through them. You know, I think that's, that's a really, really great point. And that brings up one of the things that I know we really wanted to focus on today, which was, you know, looking at youth hotlines in particular. Um, what are some of the misconceptions that people have about what happens when you call a hotline? You know, Dominic, you're there. Tell us about some, what are some of the misconceptions? I'm so sorry. I know I'm talking a lot, but this question really hit home because recently there have been so many misconceptions going around about like, you know, the suicide hotline and other related hotlines. And so uh, I just want to talk about a few, you know, one is that people think that almost every call to a suicide hotline or a related hotline ends with police intervention. When Dee Dee Hirsch has said, the Dee Hirsch Foundation has said that only that 95% of calls are handled on the line and the other 5% rarely involve police intervention. 
they also, you know, people also say that, you know, hotlines use like geo geolocating tracking and they give your information away to the to police departments, which is critically false. Like that is absolutely undeniably false. That does not happen. They also say that, you know, people, hotline volunteers read from booklets and pamphlets um, and, you know, they have a binder open where they read from to help support people, which is not true. I've been on a hotline before. I know that's not, I've never gotten a pamphlet to read. I've never seen anyone else reading from a pamphlet. It's, it comes straight from the heart. When someone's on the other side of a hotline listening, they are thinking, they are taking pauses. They're taking breaks to say, what can I say to help this person? So there are a lot of misconceptions going around about suicide hotline, about other hotlines that truly really need to be addressed because when these myths go around, and they're not checked, it prevents people from accessing necessary and vital resources that could possibly save their lives. Absolutely. I know that it's been a big thing going around on the internet lately since the 988 number became a thing that um, people think that just by calling, it'll cause them to be hospitalized. And that's just statistically not accurate. 988 can't even geolocate callers. So it's not something that you should be worrying about is that they only know the information that you're giving to them is that it is a service for you and you need to use it the way that just the best possible way that you can for yourself. So yeah, 98 can't geolocate you. So (laughs) yeah. Uh, I love how you guys are bringing up these points about how like technologically advanced and invasive these hotlines in the 988 number is and I like how Dominic brought up the point about how like the people on the other side take pauses and that proves the human factor of hotlines there are real people on the other side who are speaking to you who aren't programmed in a sense to respond to what the hotlines want them to respond with they're responding according to your needs and they're trying they're truly trying to help uh, address the needs of every caller and help them in the best way possible and I think with the 988 number there, the myths going around are was because initially they didn't have as many resources as they would have liked compared to the influx of calls they got. So it was just it was a little bit um, hard for the callers at the beginning, but now they were they've, it, they've gotten more resources and they've been able to overcome that initial hump and they're having much more success now, which is what people aren't talking enough about. Yeah, I just want to say that the majority of hotlines, like especially the smaller ones, like for example, there's a hotline called Blackline that helps uh, specifically like Black LGBTQ people of color, etc. Things like that. Those hotlines are staffed by people, young people like us, who have gone through trauma, who deal with mental health issues, and they're in that position because they want to help you. These are not just doctors that are trying to make a couple of bucks off of the, of the calls that you're making to them. Like these are genuinely people who care about your well-being and just want to help you and provide you with resources. You know, I so appreciate that because I know that the work that Teen Line and Youth Line do, these are these are teens, young people who are trained. Uh, and when you call, a lot of people who call they're not calling just because they're suicidal. They may be calling, and, and I don't remember who brought this up earlier, but it may be someone calling to say, hey, I don't know how to help my friend. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Or they may be calling because they're overwhelmed with their homework and they just are feeling super anxious and they don't know what else to do. There's a whole number of reasons that somebody might call a hotline. And Dominic, I'm going to put you on the spot and I want you to walk us through what happens when you dial a hotline like Teen Line? What happens? I mean, that's a great question. So 
you know, if you dial in the hotline, you know, you might have to wait a minute or two. It usually isn't a long waiting period until you can be connected with somebody. And once you're connected with them, usually, I mean, it depends for listeners because listeners have different strategies. You know, some listeners, they might start off with like, you know, where are you from? What's your name? And, you know, like Sarah mentioned, like we don't have geolocation. Like the only information that we get from you is the information that you give us. So if you don't want to give us your name, if you don't want to give us your address, if you don't want to give us anything and you just want to talk, we are required to listen to you no matter what information you give us. And so it's not like this, you know, super secret, like, you know, government, like tracking, like none of that happens. Like the only information that we have is the information you give us. And when we start, you know, we have to start by asking questions. We ask open-ended questions to, you know, address the situation, to, you know, assess the situation that you're in and to see, you know, what you're dealing with, to make sure that you're safe, um, to connect you with resources if, if, you know, if necessary. We just have a conversation with you. And, and I want it, I want to be completely candid. Like we're not reading off of a question questionnaire list or something. Like I've even had to take pauses like during a conversation to say, you know, what am I going to say to that? Like, what do, how do I respond to that? How can I respond in the most appropriate way to help this person? We have resources. Yes. And we have training that, you know, help us help guide us. But when we're on the line, it's us, like it's not, it's us. It's not a robot. It's not, you know, generated questions. We are coming up with the questions. We are asking the questions. We are providing resources like we are the only ones there that that are working to help you like there are no robo calls nothing none of that happens and you know throughout the call you know we'll ask you questions about how you're doing we'll assess situation we'll assess risk if you're suicidal we'll assess your suicidality risk and make sure that you are safe and in very very um very rare instances intervention may be required to keep you safe but again that's like less than five percent of if situations less than five percent of calls end up in intervention and then at the end of the call we provide you resources you know i I, we have a whole resource sheet list at teen line of like thousands of resources that we can provide for different topics and it isn't just suicide like dr robin said there's depression there's anxiety there's you know assault and domestic violence there's everything that you can think of there's even runaways and like you know international hotlines that we provide in case someone that's calling us is from india or is from pakistan you know we have resources uh, tailored for every person for every topic for every need and so that's just a glimpse of what it's like it's really just a conversation over the phone about how are you doing and then how can we best help you You know, and I'm wondering for for Sarah Muhammad, have you ever, do you know people who've actually called the hotlines before? I've called the hotlines before. And um, it's the several times in the past that I have called the hotlines. um, It's always been a positive experience, but literally it would just be like, I'd be having a really bad night and I would not feel safe. And I just need someone to talk to because there have just been years in my life where I, I didn't have anyone to talk to. And that's why hotlines are so amazing because they provide someone who just wants to focus on you and talk to you about your problems and help you. They know that calling a hospital and getting you involuntarily hospitalized doesn't help suicide rates, it increases them. They know those statistics and they they know that and they're mindful about that in helping you. I really appreciate you sharing that because I think it's really important to pull the stigma away and, and really begin to bust out that you know, a lot of people call the hotlines. I know my daughter's used them before. And 
it's a safe space to just be able to talk to somebody who's non-judgmental and who's trained and and who can actually be a good listener. And I'm I'm curious, I want to put you on the spot again, Dominic. You know, can you talk a little bit about what kind of training you have and what you went through to learn how to re- be a responder to be a, what you call a listener? That's a great question. Um, it, it wasn't easy. And being a listener on a hotline is not for everybody. Um, and I, I just want to make that clear because, you know, I, I love that everyone wants to help, but it's for individuals who definitely can handle this because this is a, a big responsibility and we don't get paid. I was never given, I was never paid for anything. I did it because I wanted to help people. And so I just wanted to add to that. Like, these aren't people who are like, it's not like a company. Like we're not trying to like handle you as quickly as possible and move you on to the next. Um, I received 60 hours of training over the period of a summer. It was uh, two times a week for three hours. Um, We received training um, on topics like domestic violence, sexual assault, again, runaways. Um, I've never had a situation where, you know, I've had to deal with someone who was a runaway, but if I did, I would know what to do. There's depression. We were taught about anxiety, you know, uh, domestic violence, you know, violence from, you know, firearms. We were taught about, you know, all sorts of things, drug addiction, you know, anything that you can think of that's, you know, possibly related to mental health, we were taught about. And then once you actually get to teen line, I know this is for teen line. I don't know about other hotlines, but I know that every hotline has rigorous training. Um, Once you get to, you know, teen line, you don't even start calls yet. You have to start with emails um, because we, we have a very robust, you know, email system where we respond to emails across the globe. And then once you complete eight role plays, which a role play is where you pretend that you're on a call about a specific topic. So it could be anything, like literally any topic. And once you pass eight role plays, then you get to start texting. And once you pass another eight, then you have to take a listener's test and then you can start calling. And so it's it's a long process and it is a rigorous process. And it, it vets everyone to make sure that people who are on the line are the most experienced that they can be. And like Sarah mentioned earlier, a lot of people on the line have personal experience with mental illness. That's the reason why I pursued uh, teen line is because I had severe, you know, trauma and depression and anxiety, and I had suicidal ideation. And once I had gotten to a place where I could convert that into service to others, I went to this hotline to be like, you know, to help other people who have been in the same circumstances that I have. So there are people on the line who are just like you, who want to help you, who've had uh, rigorous training. And I mean, that's what I can say about it. It's, it's rigorous training. It's experience. It's people who are just trying to make a change in the world for good. You know, and it's interesting. Um, I do know uh, Youthline quite well. Youthline is based here in Oregon. I know Teenline is based in Southern California. Um, Youthline, I know, uh, especially during during the pandemic, um, got special permission so that they could continue to provide their healthcare services in person. Because the way Youthline is set up, they're they're in a a an area that is set up almost like a, a circle in the round. And they always have access to a trained mental health professional. So if somebody needs help, they know how to escalate. And there's always a trained mental health professional there who can help coach and can help if if somebody gets a little bit over their skis. And I know that whether you're there live or in person or not, all of these lines have access to trained mental health professionals to escalate if you get over your skis in a situation. 
it sounds like they're very advanced. They know what they're doing. I think the biggest worry for most people is that, oh, it's teen line. They're just teens. They won't be able to help me. I think the opposite is true, that if adults try to adhere to the needs of teens, it won't be as successful. Because, for example, uh, I don't know if your schools had this implemented this program called Safe to Say, but it was this program our school tried to implement where it tried to serve as a hotline. If you recognize someone in distress, you were supposed to use it. But ultimately, they introduced it in middle school in an auditorium of rowdy middle schoolers, which is probably the worst thing they could have done. It was turned into an absolute joke. I remember one of my friends, uh, she was, she got called out to the office because someone reported her as having looked at someone else in an, um, an unkind way, which I don't know how you can do that. But it, it, just, it just turned into a ridiculous um, system, which was unfortunate. But I think it was because it was school regulated and controlled by school officials that it didn't really... Um, it wasn't really attractive to teens. However, if you realize that teens are on the other side and they have all of this extensive training and they know what they're talking about and they know that they can help you, it might be um, teens who do suffer with mental illness might be more tempted to go to that resources resource. Yeah, that's a really, really great point. And I, and I think the other thing to tap into that um, is that there are, there are a lot of those types of hotlines that I know schools set up for a lot of different reasons. And I've heard a, a lot of horror stories about how people just don't feel safe calling them because there's, there's a consequence to that. And whether it's a setup for mental health issues or for safety issues or whatever, um, those hotlines get abused. I think the protection and the confidentiality that youth line and teen line offer make it a much safer space. And, and I know that we've talked about teen line is in Southern California, youth lines in Oregon, but you take calls from all across the country and all across the world, right? Yeah, we take calls and texts and emails from all across the country, from all across the globe. Anywhere that you are, we take calls. I know that I think Youthline runs more hours than Teamline does. Um, but during our hours, we are taking calls from everywhere and we are taking texts from everywhere and we're taking emails from everywhere. So there is no... There's only a location restriction on volunteers, but there is not a location restriction on, on people who need services and need support. Well, I really hope that we're able to, uh, over the rollout of 988, lift up the youth line and teen line movement so that we can actually have that spread so that we can have volunteers nationally. I know there've been conversations about that. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful program. And as we start to roll into... Um, the end of our time here today, I want to I want to hear from all three of you around what advice would you give to somebody if they're hesitating reaching out for help? What what are you going to say to them if if somebody's like, you know, you know, they need help and they're hesitant? How do you how are you going to manage that? I think the biggest fear many people have when admitting to mental health illness or seeking help is that they'll be judged. And if you think about it, the receiving, as Dominic uh, demonstrated, the people who are receiving these calls, many of them have dealt with mental illness before, so they can empathize and sympathize with you. And they they went through all that training. At the end of the day, they're gonna they're not gonna judge you. They're truly passionate about helping you. Any hotline or uh, related to mental health is there to help you. That's its purpose. The callers have had extensive training, uh, background checks on them to make sure that they're eligible to deal with your calls and to help uh, you in the best way possible. So don't be afraid of being judged if that's what's holding you back from seeking a team line. 
Um, for me, I think that what I would say is no problem is too small. Uh, I feel like oftentimes us as teenagers, we kind of gaslight ourselves into thinking that our problems aren't very important. And if we're feeling um, any sort of suicidal ideation or thoughts or feelings or anything like that, um, we shouldn't be because our problems are so small. And how could we be feeling like this? And calling a hotline is one of the most effective ways to help with those feelings because they will validate you. They will tell you, no, your problems are real. Your feelings are real. It's okay that you're feeling like this and it's you're not gonna feel like this for the rest of your life because feel like feeling like you want to kill yourself is not a normal feeling and it's something that putting in the work in therapy and getting help, it can change. Because I went through such a long period of time in my life where I just thought it was normal and it was just the way that I was gonna feel for the rest of my life and it's not. All I can say is that four years ago, I was at a place in my life where I didn't think that I would make it to college, that I'd, I never assumed that I would have graduated high school. I had, I was pretty set on a plan to make sure that I didn't survive past my senior year. And um, once I realized that I needed help and I was connected with help resources, I, I got to a place where I could actually help other people like me. And so I, I know right now it might seem like there is no help out there, that there is no opportunity for hope, that it just, there is no way to progress forward, that there is nothing there for you. I thought the same thing for years, and now I'm a freshman in college. I am, I have volunteered for mental health organizations, helping people like me. I have gotten to a place where I actually want to live and where I want to continue and where I want to make progress and where I want to make a, a, a I, want, I want to make a change in the world. And so all I can say is that help is there for you. And no matter how hard it is to reach it and no matter how difficult it may be to, uh, to accept it, it's there for you. No one is there to judge you. And the best thing that you can do is to reach out for help. Well, I think that's a great place for us to wrap up for today. Uh, on behalf of everybody at Work To Be Well, want to remind everybody listening that you are worth it. You are amazing and you are enough. And I really, really want to thank Dominic, Sarah, and Muhammad for joining us today to talk about uh, what is a very difficult topic during Suicide Prevention Awareness Month and how we have these life-saving conversations. And Dominic, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge from Teen Line. And we are so happy to see you continue your mental health advocacy journey. We know it's going to take you amazing places and land you in our Work to Be Well Hall of Fame. So if you are looking for support with your mental health or any other medical conditions, please visit providence.org. And for parents, teachers, and students, check us out at worktobewell.org. That's work the number two, bewell.org. And please, 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 if you or someone you care for is in a crisis, please call or text the 988-SUICIDE hotline, available 24-7 at 988. Only three numbers you need to remember nowadays, 988. I am your host, Dr. Robin Henderson. This is Talk To Be Well, and be well, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>